Well, you can turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Matthew chapter 1. Uh, We're going to read verses 18 through 25, but we're mainly going to focus on verses 22 and 23. And you can also bookmark Isaiah 7. Um, You don't have to turn there. I'm going to spend a lot of time today in Isaiah 7, um, but you can have it bookmarked uh, to have um, if, if, if you need it. Well, uh, Advent is upon us, so you can look around and see all the, the wreaths and the Christmas colors. Um, it's, it's, it's wild. You know, when, you, when you're a kid, it, it always seems like it takes Christmas forever to arrive, doesn't it? Um, but then as you get older and years pass, I mean, it seems like you blink and it's Christmas is here again. But that's, that's where we are. That's where we find ourselves. Thanksgiving has come and passed, and maybe your household is in full-fledged Christmas mode. I think I'd be surprised if I heard that it wasn't. Um, but that's, that's where we are. And we've entered this season of the incarnation, season of the, the Lord Jesus taking on human flesh. And during this time, we're going to Paul's our regular sermon series on the book of Acts, and for the next four weeks, uh, we're going to do a special Advent series and look at the names of Christ. That's going to be our theme for the next four weeks, looking at the names of Christ and what those names teach us about the babe who was born of Mary and laid in a manger, heralded by an angelic host, and first visited by shepherds. My wife has been pregnant on two occasions. And my observation is that pregnancy is an interesting time. Uh, it's, It's interesting for the sheer fact that there is a human being growing in inside of her. And, and that in time you could feel that human kick and move and it's, it's, it's very, it, it's, it's strange. Um, so there's, there's that aspect of you're, there's a human being that is coming into the world, preparing to come into the world. And, and then it, it's, so it's interesting from that aspect. And then there's this societal aspect that when it comes to pregnant women, I don't know what happens, but people just tend to lose their minds, and you will do or say things uh, to pregnant women that normally you would... All, all normal boundaries and interactions go out the window. People will comment on your size and figure when they never would before. Uh, they will want to touch your belly, which they never would before. They'll ask personal questions and they'll want to know, are you having a boy or a girl? Have you picked out a name? Why that name? Is it a family name? All these things are asked. Well, I was imagining the Virgin Mary maybe in a market one day getting food. And now, of course, the technology surrounding pregnancy has has changed. You can look in the womb and see things that you never could before. But... People haven't changed. People are the same. 
So I was imagining the Virgin Mary in a market and someone comes up to her and wants to touch her belly and, and ask her questions. And like, well, I know you aren't having a, uh, well, you don't know yet if you're having a boy or a girl, but do you have names picked out? And just imagining Mary's response. Well, actually, I do know uh, I'm, I'm having a boy. And it's because uh, the Lord told me I'm having a boy. He, he sent an angel to come and tell me that I would conceive through a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit because I'm a virgin and I know his name. He will be called Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. So just imagine that response is given in in the market and maybe the person who was curious at first and asked would be overjoyed to hear this news. Or maybe they'd feel like they shouldn't have opened their mouths because they're getting more than what they'd originally bargained for. Now, I say all this because a baby boy did come. And we are entering a unique time of the year when we remember and celebrate his birth. And this year, as we focus and prepare our minds for his coming, I, and I hope you, I'm going to bring you along with me. I I, I want to be like one of those curious people in the market. Tell me the name of this child. Tell me the names that will be associated with him. Tell me their significance and, and their meaning so that in knowing more of those names, I would know more of him. That's what we're going to do this Advent, and we're going to begin today with the name Emmanuel. Let's pray and then read God's Word. Father God, I ask for your blessing on this preaching of your Word. We know that in your Word there is power, and that through it uh, you you work in human hearts. And so, Father, we ask you uh, to work today for our good and your glory In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to begin in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man, And unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not 
until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. So we're looking at the names given to our Lord. And in doing this, we are given a clearer, fuller picture of who he is and what he has done. You know, if you remember last week's sermon, we talked about the content of the gospel. And I contended that the gospel is the good news of who Jesus is, what he has done, and how we, by faith, are made beneficiaries of his work. Okay, that's the gospel. Who is Jesus? What has he done? And how, by faith, do we become beneficiaries of his work? Well, it seems like if part of the gospel is knowing who Jesus is, it's all the more reason uh, to study the names given to him. And as I said earlier, the first name we're going to look at today is Emmanuel. And it hit me this morning uh, that in studying the name of Emmanuel, there, there's some deep water here. We could spend, we could spend the entire Christmas season just on this name alone. I, I felt like a toddler on a diving board just staring down into clear, deep water. There's, there's a, so much depth here, um, hashing out the implications of what it means that God is with us. And we, could, we could spend a semester on it, but my plan today is, so it, it may be unexpected in your mind, but it's, I, I want to connect this name back to its Old Testament history. We, we read here in Matthew that he, you see in verse 23, this is a quotation. Where does that quotation come from? What, what's the history behind it? What, what's the story there? That's what we're going to look at today, and then I'll give you some closing application. So, back to verses 22 and 23. I'm going to reread those. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew is tying these historical events that surrounded the birth of Jesus to something that happened earlier in the history of God's people. Okay? There is a promise that God made to the king of Judah. I'll give you a couple names. Ahaz was the king of Judah. That's the southern kingdom. There's a split after Solomon. There's a split Israel in the north, Judah in the south. We're talking about Judah. And Judah's king at the time was Ahaz. And God sends his prophet to Ahaz. That prophet's name is Isaiah. So the story we're looking at comes from Isaiah chapter 7. And, and I want to tell you the story of uh, the circumstances behind this quote that we see in verse 23. And it begins with King Ahaz. And King Ahaz finds himself between a rock and a hard place. The rock is this uh, 
superpower. I'll, I'll refer to them as the big dog. You have this big dog, which is the most powerful, dominant world empire at the time. And it is hungrily gobbling up territory and other nations and swelling and growing. And Ahaz feared this superpower. That's the rock. What about the hard place? The hard place on the other side of King Ahaz was, is two smaller neighboring countries. These two smaller countries didn't want to get gobbled up by the big dog. They wanted to retain their freedom and their independence. And so they thought the only way that we can stand is if we're united. You know, the whole united, you stand, divided, you fall. And so all of us smaller countries, we need to gather together as one united front so that we can oppose this superpower together. And so these two smaller neighboring nations approach King Ahaz. And they tell him this. That it's, it would be in your best interest to join with us. If you want to retain your people and your kingdom, you need to join with us. But here's where we're going to twist your arm. This is serious. And so you are either with us or you are against us. So you're either with us in this coalition against the big, mean superpower, or you are our enemy as well. And guess what? The capital of the superpower is 800 miles away, but we are your neighbors. So you better join with us. That's where King Ahaz finds himself. Should he join with these two smaller nations to oppose the superpower, or should he reject their alliance and risk the people on his borders attacking him? Well, Isaiah 7 tells us that the king was terrified. Understandably, he was terrified. His people were terrified. We're told that their hearts shook like heart that they shook like trees of the forest that are shaken by wind. So what's the king going to do? Well, he decides that he's going to make nice with the big dog. He's going to reject these two smaller neighboring nations. And he's going to ask the big dog for help. And he's going to send large sums of gold to their king so that their military will protect him. Now, nothing about this story so far is unique. This type of diplomacy and foreign policy has happened over and over again in history tens of thousands of times. It's still happening today. But the reason this story is unique and the reason we're telling it today is because God Almighty sends a prophet, Isaiah, to King Ahaz with a message. And the first part of that message is to not be afraid of these neighboring nations. Don't be afraid of these countries that are trying to twist your arm and force you to join with them. God tries to comfort the king and to give him assurance. And he says, don't be afraid of them. And listen to how God describes these two neighboring nations. He describes them as uh, smoldering stumps of firewood. You know, oftentimes in 
in, in, in the Bible, kingdoms and kings, that they would, they would be depicted as mighty tall trees. Well, these nature are they depicted as mighty tall trees? They're, no, God says they are stumps. Stumps that are going to be used as firewood. And not only are they going to be used as firewood, but they are already smoking. God is saying when it comes to these neighboring countries that are threatening you, do not fear. They cannot hurt you. Their plans will not come to pass. Their kingdom will not stand. Do not worry about them. But don't depend on the big dog either. Don't put your trust in the strength of human empire. Don't look to that superpower for safety and protection. Instead, look to me. That's the Lord's message. Look to me. Trust in me. Put your faith in me. Protect me. And I will fight for you. I will be your sanctuary for I am God Almighty. And empires will come and go. But I, the Lord, will stand forever. Now you'd think that would be enough. God sends his prophet to go to the king and to bring this message. But it goes even beyond that. He, he offers something that is unimaginably gracious. And I think we all wish that we could have been in this position and God would have made this request of us and we could, we could do what's offered. You know what God says to King Ahaz? Ask me for a sign. How many times have we wished that we could ask the Lord for a sign and he would do it? The Lord says, ask me for a sign. And he says, it could be anything from the deepest depths of the earth to the highest heights of heaven. That's your span. Ask me and I will show you. I'll give you assurance that my, my words are true and my promise will be fulfilled. I will show you something spectacular to prove that I am with you and you have nothing to fear. It's an amazing opportunity given to King Ahaz. But he passes on it. He says, no thanks. Not interested. And he says something interesting. King Ahaz responds and says, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Now we might hear that and think, oh, that sounds good. Jesus said that. When he was tempted in the wilderness, he said, he said that you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Are we seeing a reflection of Christ in this king? Is this piety we're seeing? No, it's, it's falsehood. The king is lying. I think, uh, imagine, we, we can all understand this. Imagine you've been invited to go to a party and you don't want to go to the party. You've decided from the start, there's no way I'm going. I have no interest in going. But I can't, I have to say something. So I'm just going to come up with a really good excuse to get me out of this. Maybe a personal excuse. I, I can blame, I can blame that the kids are sick and I need to stay home and watch them. Or I'm just not feeling well myself. Or, or maybe, maybe we come up with some pious, holy excuse. Oh, I can't come to the party. I'm... I'm spending the evening fasting. Can't come eat. I'm, I'm, spending, I'm spending the evening in prayer. 
so I can't come. All the while, we have no interest in going. We're just lying to make an excuse. That's what King Ahaz is doing here. He, he has already decided in his mind that he's going to trust in this superpower. He's going to trust. He's looking to them for protection. He's already paid them. He doesn't want God to confirm that he's wrong to put his trust in them. So he says, no thanks. And he rejects the Lord just like he rejected those two neighboring countries that wanted to team up. Now, how does the Lord respond to this rejection? How does he respond? Well, you can read this in Isaiah 7. The Lord's basically going to say, all right, you didn't want a son? I'm going to give you one anyway. And, and before, this sign was going to be a blessing. It was going to be a sign of my presence with you. And that my being with you would be a blessing. But now it's going to be the opposite. I'm going to give you a sign, but it's going to be a sign of my presence as a curse. He says, here's your sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Sounds familiar. Now, I think a lot of us, when we get to this time of year, we'll go back to Isaiah 7, and we'll, we'll read that verse, Isaiah seven fourteen and yes, we, and then we jump straight back to Matthew. Well, we need to do a little more work in Isaiah. Because I want us to have a better understanding of why Matthew is referencing it. And we need to start by understanding that there is an immediate fulfillment of this sign. Meaning that there will be a child born in Isaiah's day who is going to come, and his coming is going to signal trouble. Right? So you do have some immediate fulfillment of the sign. It's partial fulfillment, but there is immediate. And listen, Matthew's Jewish readers would have known this. They would have known that there was a, a real baby born in this king's day. And his coming was a sign of curse on those Unbelievers. You can keep reading in Isaiah 7 and see that, remember those two neighboring countries that were twisting the king's arm, saying you need to join with us? Well, God says that before this child is old enough to know to choose to do what's right and reject to do what's wrong, before he's old enough to do that, these two other countries will be laid to waste. They will cease to exist. The smoldering stumps have now been utterly removed. Well, what about the big dog? Well, we know in time that that kingdom will fall. But before it does, God is going to use them to judge this unbelieving king. He's going to say, all right, if, if you wanted to trust in them and thought that they could protect you and they could be your sanctuary... I'm going to turn them on you. And you've offered that big dog gold, but your hand is about to be bitten. Everything you've put your trust in is going to crumble, and you will be left with nothing because you did not trust in me. That's what's going to happen when this child comes. 
and the Jews in Matthew's day, knowing their own history, knew this, that the birth of this child marked judgment on those who did not trust in the Lord. Now, maybe you're asking, well, what about the comment about this child being born of a virgin? What do we do with that? Do we have two instances of virgin birth, right? This seems pretty unique. It doesn't happen all the time. Were there two instances? Or there's another unfortunate angle that those in Christendom have taken. You'll see it especially in theological liberal circles where they'll say, well, this just proves that there wasn't any virgin birth. And they'll use this as a citation for why they will deny the virgin birth of Christ. Well, what do we do with this? Because we are told that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. We have to talk a little Hebrew vocabulary. The Hebrew word that is used in Isaiah 7.14 that we translate as virgin is the word alma. A-L-M-A. And that word is a bit ambiguous. If you wanted to nail down a definition, you could say it's a young woman of marriageable age. A young woman of marriageable age. Now, a young woman of marriageable age who is not married was assumed to be a, vir- to be a virgin, Right? It was assumed that she would be a virgin. Well, you might say, why not use a more precise term? Why not, in Isaiah 7, why not use a term that explicitly means virgin? Or, if, if she's not going to be a virgin virgin, why not use a, a more plain term like woman or young woman? Well, it's because there's a double meaning to this sign. There is an immediate partial fulfillment of this sign, and there is a long-term, greater, fuller fulfillment of this sign. The the reason, y'all stay with me for a second. The reason that the precise language of virgin is not used is because the mother of this child in Isaiah's day will become pregnant through natural means, by her husband. Not a miracle of the Holy Spirit. And at the same time, a simple word such as young woman is not used because as one commentator put it, in the long term, this sign, higher than heaven, deeper than hell, referred to the coming of Jesus Christ, the true Emmanuel, And the virginity of his mother was vitally important. We read about that today in our affirmation of faith. That's why the Lord chooses to use this ambiguous term, because it allows space for both of these pregnancies. Right, if I've lost you with foreign policy and Hebrew vocabulary, come back in. I want to tell you the lesson God is teaching us from this story Everything that God foretold through Isaiah came to pass. 
This child was born. The threatening neighbors were destroyed. The big dog bit the king. The king and his people were humiliated. Those who did not believe but looked to worldly powers for protection found a stumbling block instead of safety. And again, the Matthews, uh, the Matthews, the Jews reading Matthew's gospel would have known this. And so what Matthew does is he makes a connection to the greater fulfillment, the greater sign. And he wants them to see that if our God kept his promise in Isaiah's day, how much greater will it be when the one who is born of a virgin is the very Son of God? You see, knowing the background to this story, it helps us to see that in the birth of Jesus, in a fuller and greater way, there is both a promise of blessing and cursing. Just as in Isaiah 7, if we will follow him alone as Savior, and if we will trust in him alone and look to him as our sanctuary and not to the things of this world, his coming will be a blessing to us. If we won't trust in the powers of this world, the White Houses, the Supreme Courts, the powers of our day, but if we look to Him as our rock and hiding place, He will be God with us and it will be a blessing. On the other hand, if like Ahaz, we spurn Him and remain stubborn and hard-hearted in our unbelief, if we do not submit to Him as the Son of God, just as in Isaiah's day, his birth signals disaster. Only now, in the fuller, greater fulfillment, the blessing and cursing that comes with it is only intensified. But before the cursing was a military coming to your land and burning crops and houses and killing a lot of people and then hauling the rest off as slaves into captivity. But now, in, in the rejection of the one born of the virgin, it is now dying in your sins and being judged by God. This this is also intensified blessing as well. Because looking to Him and trusting in Him means that your life is hidden in the Lord Jesus. That you are covered in His righteousness. And for His sake... You are accepted by God and dwell in his presence forever. You see, there's an intensification here. As the sign becomes greater, so do the blessings and curses. This is why Matthew is tying the birth of Christ back to Isaiah 7. It can be both positive and negative, this Emmanuel, God with us. We can trust in him and look to him as our sanctuary and he will be with us. He will protect us. He will uphold us with his powerful right hand. Or we can refuse him and find a stumbling block instead of a sanctuary. And Matthew is telling his readers, remember what happened to King Ahaz and look for sanctuary in God alone. Remember 
the child, this sign that was given, and now see the greater fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Now, I would imagine a lot of us have lived long enough where we can look back in our own history. We can look at specific times when assurance uh, was weak, and so we looked for sanctuary elsewhere. Maybe life got hard, we got impatient, we became fearful, and like Ahaz, unbelief took over, and we just scrambled to find the nearest, most solid thing to trust in and rest on. And we can look back and see those things, and we can also see how they brought damage to ourselves and our lives and to the lives of others and how they damaged relationships. I think we've all been there to some extent. But as believers, I'm sure we can also look back at instances and seasons when by his grace, we were enabled to look to him as our strength. Maybe we had nothing else to hold on to except him. And we felt his nearness and that he was with us. And he proved more than sufficient. Maybe you've had the life experiences that really make you resonate with King David's 23rd Psalm. You've walked through the valley of the shadow of death. You've walked through the valley of deep darkness. And you've experienced the truth and power of those words, I will fear no evil for you are with me. You know, in thinking about those words, God with us, I realize that it would be challenging to come up with words that are more comforting than that. And the more we learn of Jesus and the more we, we think about it and, and the synapses in our mind fire and we, we picture Jesus Christ with us, it's hard to think of something more comforting. Charles Haddon Spurgeon made a comment on Emmanuel. And he wrote this. He said, Emmanuel, God with us, it is hell's terror. Satan trembles at the sound of it. Let him come to you suddenly, and do you but whisper that word, God with us. Back he falls, confounded and confused. God with us is the laborer's strength. How should he preach the gospel? How could he bend his knees in prayer? How could the missionary go into foreign lands? How could the martyr stand at the stake? How could the confessor own his master? How could men labor if that one word were taken away? God with us. It's eternity's sonnet. Heaven's hallelujah. The shout of the glorified. The song of the redeemed. The chorus of the angels. The everlasting oratorio of the great orchestra of the sky. It's unbelievable. You know, you hear that quote from Spurgeon and that's what's making me feel like a toddler looking down into the depths, those crystal clear depths of the person and work of Jesus Christ, seeing that 
The same one who walked this earth and knew the hearts and thoughts of men. And the same one who had power over Satan and demons. The same one who could work the greatest miracle simply by speaking a word. The same one who was ministered to by angels. He is with us. He is our foundation of all our trust and hope. We don't put our hope in some powerful country or powerful government or powerful military. We put our trust in him. You can jump from one end of Matthew to the very opposite and look in Matthew 28. And you'll see our Lord say, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so we look to him as our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble because he is God with us. And he invites you to come maybe for the first time or to return again and to trust in him and to trust in his most precious blood and come and be washed and find forgiveness. I I, I want to end with the best thing I found this week on the name Emmanuel. And it comes, unsurprisingly, from Sinclair Ferguson. He made this statement in one of his sermons when he was at First Pres, Columbia, South Carolina. He says this, He has come to be Emmanuel, God with us, so that he can be God for us on the cross. And he came to be God for us on the cross so that he can be God with us in the whole of our lives. I want to repeat that one more time. He has come to be God with us so that he could be God for us on the cross. And he came to be God for us on the cross so that he can be God with us in the whole of our lives. You ask that question, why did he come? Why did he leave that place of glory and majesty? Why would he leave heaven and come dwell among us so that he could be God for us on the cross? So that he could take upon himself the sin of his bride and he could pay for it once and for all, dying the death that we should have died. He was God for us on the cross so that now he can be God with us forever and ever, both in this life and in the life to come. Let's pray. Father God, in the child that was born, the son that was given, would we see that glorious truth that God with us came to be God for us on the cross so that we might be with you forever and ever. Father, help us to look to you alone as our trust, knowing that you are enough, that everything else is sinking sand, everything else is perishable, everything else is fleeting, and yet you are eternal. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you are good, and you love us. Help us to trust you more. Help us to see more clearly the, the, the grasp and the, the hands in which 
We are forever held. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.